we've been going through Mark for a few weeks now, and we started off talking about uh, taking more of a, a bigger look at the book of Mark, bigger picture look. Um, so let's do a, a little bit of review. What are some of the key words and perhaps even the key verse that we've identified with the book of Mark? Testing your memory now, going back a, a few weeks. What are some of the key words that Mark uses throughout his gospel? Immediately. Indeed, he does. It's a, a fast, quick-paced book immediately all throughout. Authority? Yes, authority, especially in the first few chapters. We haven't necessarily got to that just yet, but we're going to be focusing on the authority of Christ, uh, how he exercised authority over the, the demons, authority over nature, uh, we see that Mark is really emphasizing this authority aspect of Christ. And in that we see uh, the fact that he is divine, his, his deity, in, uh, by way of his authority. And then the, the key verse for Mark, anybody remember that or have that jotted down? It's in chapter 10. Yes. <laughs> All right, well, good. And that's, that's a start. Chapter 10, verse 45 which says, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, and that goes right along with the, the key uh, kind of purpose of Mark writing, that Jesus is our suffering servant. He came uh, to, not to be served, but to serve, give his life as a ransom for many. All right, and a couple of weeks ago, for the last couple of weeks, rather, we've been talking about repentance Anybody want to take a stab at defining repentance? Yes, Sam. Change of mind. Indeed, it is a change of mind, and that change of mind will result in a change of action. It's not just simply a, an intellectual acknowledgement, but it's an intellectual acknowledgement that will lead to a, a changed life. But it is not, however, uh, equivalent with um, just simply stop to sinning. Stop stopping sinning, um, as some people will define repentance. So we need to be careful to make that distinction. And then last week, we spent pretty much all of our time talking about baptism. And somebody defined baptism for us. When you think baptism, what words should pop into your head? Association. Good. Association or identification, right? Uh, there are several different baptisms throughout the, the Bible that we see in not all of them are talking about water baptism. We have that tendency to automatically think water when we hear the word baptism. That's not what we should do. We should think identification or association. And one of the baptisms that we talked about last week was obviously John's baptism. So what is so radical about John's baptism of repentance? I'm putting you on the spot. Why was his baptism different or unique? Um, remember, in the Old Testament, there were Gentiles who would be baptized, um, so to speak, into the, the Jewish culture. If they wanted to be identified as a Jew, then they would go through some kind of ceremonial cleansing. And um, We don't see this in Scripture, but uh, tradition tells us that that was some kind of a, a baptismal-type service. So what was unique and different about John's baptism? Yeah, and baptism of repentance. So they were identifying with their need for repentance. It wasn't a baptism for salvation, but a baptism recognizing their need for salvation. 
And remember that John was ministering amongst a bunch of Jewish people. And so he was talking to these Jewish people saying, you guys need to identify as non-Jewish people. Though you are the chosen people of God, uh, you need to identify as somebody who is in need of God, somebody who does not have um, that direct access to, to God and um, really identifying as an outsider who's in need of a savior. And that was totally radical at that time. We went on from there and we talked about uh, spirit baptism, being baptized in the spirit. We went back and we looked in the Old Testament at Ezekiel 36 and um, how God promised Israel that he would give them a new heart, he would put a new spirit within them, that he would remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And then we talked about how that ties in with the, the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, uh, the new covenant that we as Gentiles are, are grafted into, that we are welcomed into. Uh, we can look, or you could look more at Hebrews 8, talking about how we, that new covenant is in Christ and we are in Christ, um, how we as Gentiles have been welcomed into that new covenant. And then also, we went from there and we looked at, um, in Matthew 3.11, it uses three different types of baptism. It talks about John's baptism of repentance, then how Jesus will come. Jesus who is greater than John. John's not worthy to even stoop down and untie his sandal. And Jesus will baptize them with the Spirit, which we just referenced, and with fire. What do we know about the, the baptism of fire? How should we understand that phrase, that term? Is that a good thing? It's a baptism of judgment. Yes, it is not a good thing. Not something that we should strive for or look forward to. It is speaking of the judgment that is to come. Um, separating the wheat from the chaff and looking forward to the, the great white throne judgment and how Jesus is going to judge in, in wrath. Yes? So if this baptism fire is a bad thing, would it be better to understand it rather than being an identification with judgment, like you are identifying yourself with judgment, would it be better to take it as an immersion of types, like he's going to baptize literally with fire? Um, yeah, I wouldn't say it's a, an either or, but they will be identified by being immersed in a fire of judgment. Do you have something? No, I was just, oh. I was, what you were saying, they're being identified as the judged. Yes. yes. Yep. Good. All right, and then uh, what was unique about Jesus' baptism? Well, he didn't need to be baptized for repentance. Yes. Yeah, Jesus was identifying with sinners, not as a sinner, right? In Mark 1, verse 5, it talked about how everybody who came to John to be baptized, they were uh, confessing their sins there at the end of verse 5. Well, Jesus didn't have any sins to confess. Instead, Jesus was identifying with us who are sinners. He was identifying uh, with, our, um, with, with sin, uh, and he did so, so that all righteousness might be fulfilled. We went back and we talked about how perhaps it was an allusion to the Old Testament and how the, the priests, when they were 30, they would go and they would be cleansed in preparation for their ministry. Um, but he was definitely being identified with sinners, not as a sinner. And then uh, we also talked about how the baptism of Christ is often used by non-believers to point out... Um, They'll point to the baptism of Jesus and they'll say, well, this is clearly not in line with Trinitarian theology, which just uh, shows a, a basic misunderstanding of what it means to believe in a Trinitarian God, that God is triune. 
So we talked a little bit about the Trinity, that um, Jesus' baptism, in fact, affirms the triune God, showing a clear distinction in persons. We talked about um, how we have to distinguish between personhood and being. How there is one being of God, but three persons of God. Uh, person meaning that um, there is a, a, a distinct, um, three distinct persons who have intellect and emotion, the ability to, uh, to, to feel, um, and then will, the ability to, to think and to make decisions. Um, so I know that last week we, we didn't spend a whole ton of time on that. We just kind of touched on it a little bit, and I want to show this very popular diagram to um, just see if you might have any questions. So this diagram is talking about how there is only one God. We see that all, all the way throughout the Bible, uh, particularly in Isaiah chapters 40 through 48, the, the trial of the false gods. We see that there is only one God. Um, he is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. He knows of no other God. Uh, there is no rock besides him. There is no savior besides him. Um, there's no God who came before him, no God who's going to come after him. There is only one God. And then this diagram points out the fact that the Father is God in fullness, the, the total fullness of God. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And yet there is a distinction in persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Uh, we can see this very clearly in John 1, 1, which says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. We see a distinction there that the Word, who's later identified as Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, he was both with God, so there's a distinction, and yet he was God. There's a, a unity there. So that's a very big doctrine that a lot of people stumble over because a lot of people take and they'll misrepresent it. They'll uh, say that we believe that God presents himself in three different persons or three different forms or modes, and that's why they'll look at the baptism and they'll say, well, this is clearly uh, a text that teaches against Trinitarian theology. Uh, there are a number of different ways to misunderstand the, the doctrine of the Trinity. So, before we go on, any thoughts or questions on that very big doctrine? Jerry's got something for us. Well, I totally don't see how they would say that the baptism teaches against the Trinity. How are they, what are they seeing there? That because a lot of people think that we're modalists, that we think that there is one God who presents himself in three different modes. And so that, and there are a lot of people who believe that, and they'll say, well, primarily in the Old Testament, we see the Father, and then in the New Testament, we see the Son, and then after that, we see the Holy Spirit, um, after the, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, then we see the Spirit. And so they'll look at the baptism, and they'll say, well, look, here we see all three, so clearly they're, they're either three different gods, three separate gods, um, tritheism, or um, they, Jesus and the Holy Spirit aren't God, we only see the Father. But again, that's not what we believe. It's um, fundamentally starting with a, a misunderstanding of our position. Like partialism as well. It, it just stems from any number of the yep. ancient yeah, it wasn't, early heresies. Yeah, it wasn't one third of God who was being dipped down into the water with one third of God descending as a dove and one third of God saying, this is my beloved son whom I will please. No, each one is, is fully God. That's why we have to make that fundamental distinction between being and person. Any other thoughts or questions on this very deep, complex, again, oft-misunderstood doctrine of the Trinity? Jerry, 
of an easy, simple way to explain to someone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is why there are so many misunderstandings. Indeed. <laughs> yep. I, I think that's about as basic as you can get. That's how I tell my kids. Uh, three persons and one God. And, or three persons uh, and one being. Um, that this pulpit has being. This pulpit exists, right? Um, this pulpit has essence, and yet it's not a person. It doesn't have intellect, emotion, and will. Um, I think a large part of our misunderstanding stems from the fact that we are persons who share one being with one person, right? Those are uh, equivalent in our understanding. But God is different from us. He is not like us. He is very much unlike us. And so we have to make that distinction between being and person. Um, and we have to just take the, the Bible for what it says. Again, all those references back in Isaiah are clear that there is one God. Um, Deuteronomy says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet we see these other passages that really clearly identify that Jesus is God, that the Holy Spirit is God. In Acts uh, 5, 3, and 4, it says, You have not lied to God, but you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Or you have not lied to man, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then you have not lied to man, you have lied to God. So the Holy Spirit is God as well. Um, and then along with that, if you remember these three words that kind of go along with the, the Trinity, the doctrine of Trinity, uh, that there is singularity, there is one God, right? And yet there is plurality. There are three persons within that one God, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then there is equality within those three persons. So the Father is not more God than the Son. The Holy Spirit is not more God than the Son. Even though we see... Um, submission within the trinity um, that's speaking to the the economic trinity how they function within the trinity not to um, their their being or their their importance within the trinity and people will try to simplify this by using illustrations any illustration you use is going to fall short even this diagram is going to fall short uh, because god is god he is far superior to us and we can't condense him into an illustration of an egg or water or uh, a finger, uh, none of that's going to cut it. Well, it's just our nature to want him to be like us. Yep. Why would we even imagine that a being or a person could create the cosmos just out of it by his will? Why would we think that he's like us? Mm -hmm. It's just falling us at the most basic level that we want him to be like us. Yeah. We want to be able to understand him. Yeah, we, we do. We think we should be able to We also don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that uh, we can lead somebody to Christ through an intellectual understanding of him. There's a spiritual component to this. Um, people have their eyes blinded. Um, we are engaged in a spiritual war. And so just sitting somebody down and, and showing them clearly from scripture, well, this is where we see that um, there is one God. This is where we see Jesus is God. That's not gonna cut it if the Holy Spirit hasn't done a work in that person's heart. That spirit baptism that we were just talking about, that is vital and essential to the regenerative process, to somebody becoming a, a new person, a new creature, to being born again. And then they'll be able to see and understand. God will open up their eyes and that spiritual reality will be made clear to them. Josh. Makes it as simple as we can while still acknowledging God's otherness and that there's an out there, 
there are implications of this we can't fully understand. Mm -hmm. All the illustrations that you that you mentioned, like that, you know, we've all heard all these attempts. The problem is that they they try to explain God by making by using something lesser than mm -hmm. us, and and um, it, they they end up complicating the issue and and incorrectly teaching, particularly children. I've heard that these yeah. like you know wrong views of God um, unintentionally most of the time, uh, but. Um, this explanation makes it as simple as we can while acknowledging God's just He's different. beyond us. He's other. We, uh, we can't expect to fully comprehend everything about God. So. Yep. And so. back when we were doing our systematic theology, you can go back and find this in our archives online or on our app. I think we spent three hours going through the Trinity, maybe it was more, um, and picking apart each one of those illustrations, the, the three-leaf clover and the egg, and talking about partialism, modalism, and uh, all these different things and how we don't fully understand them. And uh, hopefully further into this lesson, we'll encounter more aspects about God that we can't fully understand and fully grasp, which instead of causing us to think, um, I need to, to run away from that because I don't, I don't get that. I'm, I'm not smart enough. I'm not bright enough. I need to um, hide from that. We need to embrace the fact that we serve a, an amazing God who is worthy of our worship and praise. Just yeah, so it seems like, I mean, one thing we know is clear taught in the Bible, there is one God, mm -hmm. and also Jesus is God. And, you know, I think we, you know, Bill tried to ask us, like, well, how do you explain, like, the Trinity? And we're just like, well, I think that's as far as we can really go, because that's really what is presented us in the Bible. Yep. And, you know, that's just that, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Paul said in... First Corinthians 4, 6, I think, um, that he and Apollos decided not to go beyond what has been written. And that's definitely a good practice. That's what we need to do. We need to stick to the word and not uh, come up short of the word. Um, and definitely don't go beyond what God has written to, to try to add to what God has presented to us. All right. Well, um, last week, <laughs> for some reason, I thought, uh, surely we can do the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus in one week, um, which was foolish, especially when we're trying to get into deep concepts like the Trinity and other stuff we'll, we'll touch on today. But today, let's look at the, the temptation of Christ. Um, I want to go through, we're just going to look at two verses in Mark to begin, and remember that our, our Bible study needs to be consisting of observing the text, of interpreting the text. Um, particularly when the old, we're in the Old Testament, um, taking and fin finding out, okay, well, how can we um, make this customized to today, and then applying the text. So let's go through and observe what we see in verses 12 and 13 of Mark chapter 1. It says, Immediately the Spirit impelled him, that is Christ, to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Remember, Mark is the, the writer who's rushing through, right? He has a point to make. He wants to hurry and get to the cross. And so immediately he's rushing through this really quickly. But what are some of the basic things that we see in those two verses talking about the temptation of Christ? He is submissive to the spirit of God. Yes. Yeah, he is being led by the Spirit, allowing the, the Spirit to lead him. Good. What else do we see? 
All right, wilderness, 40 days. He is there being tempted by Satan. Uh, there are wild beasts there. He's out in the wilderness, right? Uh, and angels were ministering to him. Well, let's supplement this really uh, short account with Mark's account. Let's turn back to, I said Mark, to Matthew. Uh, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 4. And here we're going to look at 11 verses from Matthew. And I'm actually going to go through and I'll read all 11. And then let's go back and verse by verse, let's look at it and see what it is that we can learn from uh, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, uh, speaking about the temptation of Christ. It says, starting in verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to them, on the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and began to minister to him. So, Jumping back up to verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What do we see in that verse? Just as we had mentioned before, it was the Holy Spirit who was leading him, right? And Jesus was listening. I think uh, if we're not really... In, in tune with the text, this might catch us off guard because we think, okay, well, surely it was Satan who was wanting to tempt Jesus and the Holy Spirit. He would have nothing to do with that. But no, it was the Holy Spirit who said, go. He actually led him. Uh, the word here, uh, ekbalo, uh, to, to throw out, it's the same word that we see um, looking back in, in Mark later on in, in chapter 1 down in verse 34 when it talks about demons being cast out. The Holy Spirit was was throwing Jesus out, casting him out into the wilderness to be um, tempted by Satan. So here in Mark 1, 34, it says that he healed many who were ill with various diseases and he cast out many demons. We see the same thing in verse 39 of Mark 1, that he was casting out many demons. That's the same word used here, that the Holy Spirit said, no, you're you're going out into the wilderness uh, to be tempted by the devil. And... uh, John Chrysostom, we mentioned him a little bit last week. He's from the, the 4th century, 4th, 5th century. He kind of makes it practical for us. He gives us some application here with this quote. He says, you see how the Spirit led him, not into a city or public arena, but into a wilderness. In this desolate place, the Spirit extended the devil an occasion to test him, not only by hunger, but also by loneliness. For it is there, most especially, that the devil assails us. When he sees us left alone and by ourselves, in the same way, 
did he also confront Eve in the beginning, having caught her alone apart from her husband. So he's uh, making some, some application, talking about the, the schemes and the, uh, the ways in which Satan works. And we'll touch on that a little bit more here in a moment. But it is interesting to, to note that he was taken out into the wilderness, into this desert place. It wasn't just uh, uh, hunger that he's dealing with, but also uh, this aspect of loneliness. And in verse 2, uh, we see that Jesus was hungry after fasting for 40 days. If you notice back in Mark, Mark didn't even mention the fact that Jesus was fasting. He just said he was out in the wilderness for 40 days being, being tempted. Uh, did he even mention the number of days? He did, right? Back in Mark. Yep, for 40 days he was in the wilderness being tempted. But he didn't mention this aspect of him fasting. Matthew and Luke, they both mentioned that he was out there and he was fasting for the entirety of this 40-day period, 40 days and 40 nights. Um, very similar to the Old Testament we see in uh, Exodus 34, that Moses was fasting for 40 days. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah did the same. He fasted for 40 days. And Jesus comes on the scene. Uh, he follows suit. He fasts for 40 days. And what was the result of his 40-day fast? The biggest understatement in the Bible. <laughs> yes, he became hungry, right? After fasting for 40 days, uh, he was then hungry. And this speaks very clearly to the humanity of Christ, to the, the frailty of his human form. And again, we'll touch on that a little bit more here in a moment. In verse 3, what do we see? Matthew 4, verse 3. Good. Very well put. Satan, taking advantage of his hunger, gives him an opportunity based on his divine nature. Uh, Satan realizes you are divine. You're the creator of all things. You spoke all things into existence, right? There's nothing that exists apart from you. Uh, why don't you just go make these stones bread? Uh, Satan questions uh, Jesus as the Son of God in doing this. Notice that very subtle use of the word if. In verse 3, he says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. So he's questioning Jesus very subtly, um, tempting him. Well, go ahead and, and prove yourself, right? And we mentioned Jesus was the creator of all things. There's nothing innately wrong with Jesus creating. Um, he's done that before. He can do that again. He could tell these stones become rocks or tell these <laughs> stones slash rocks become bread. Um, so... The, the aspect of sin there would be that um, it seems as if Satan is seeming to get Jesus to go against the, the will of the Father, to go against the will of the Spirit who has led him out there. And uh, it would seem that the, the purpose of doing so is for him to fast, for him to be hungry. And that's why this would indeed be a temptation if Jesus were to submit to that uh, and give in to this, this subtle questioning of Satan. Um, questioning his deity. In verse 4, we see that Jesus responds by quoting scripture, and he affirms God's provision. Uh, he goes back and uh, quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, uh, saying that it's better to obey God than to satisfy human desire. Uh, 
he doesn't want to go against the will of God, but he wants to instead um, submit to God. That man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then uh, in verses 5 and 6, we see that Satan tempts Jesus to jump off of the temple. Um, saying, again, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And then here, uh, Satan begins to, to tempt Christ. Uh, one interesting point is that in, in Luke, these, the second and third temptation, they're, they're flipped around. Luke will present this temptation of, of jumping off as the third temptation and um, the other temptation as the second. But if we go back and take Mark's understanding, it says that Jesus was being tempted for 40 days. So it seems as if the whole 40-day process was a temptation that Jesus was submitting himself to. He was undergoing this temptation for the entire 40 days. And Matthew and, and Luke, they just pick these three out for a specific reason, for a specific purpose, to draw these temptations out and, and highlight some facts about them. But um, looking at uh, the end of verse 6, we see that Satan knows and uses Scripture. That's how Satan is tempting Christ, telling him to jump off. He says, for it is written. And he starts to uh, use Scripture. He goes back to Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12, and of course he, he twists it and misuses this text. Uh, that text in its entirety says, for he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you. And Satan leaves out this very important part of the verse. He says, in all of your ways, they will bear you up in their hands. They do not strike your foot, that you not strike your foot against a stone. And so according to the psalmist, a person is protected uh, when they're following God's will in, in all their ways. And context is, is key, and Satan doesn't use that at all, and he's just trying to take and manipulate new scripture. I think, again, if we're not caught up on, on scripture, then we'll just kind of think, okay, well, Satan, he's, he's not allowed to use that. He would never use or, or quote scripture. Uh, quite the opposite. I think he uses it often, and he twists it often. Uh, he's masquerading as an angel of light. He's a, a roaring lion seeking who can devour uh, he is very crafty, and he's not uh, opposed to using scripture. It's kind of interesting that Jesus doesn't quote that same scripture in context, but he, he quotes a different scripture that still, you know, contradicts that one. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Jesus goes back to Deuteronomy. He loves Deuteronomy, uh, although he uses the Psalms a lot too. Psalms are the most quoted book in the New Testament. Uh, but Deuteronomy is right up there with them. But yeah, Jesus go, does go back and he quotes from Deuteronomy 6.16 6, in context and does so to rebuke Satan, um, saying that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay. It's interesting though that he doesn't argue the accuracy of like, you know, he, he rebukes Satan with proper scripture, but he doesn't enter into an argument over that text of scripture. Yeah. Explaining why it's why he used it wrong and why like uh -huh. <laughs> these yeah. these passages do a lot to show the limitation of just mere information and knowledge yep. of scripture. Like, yeah, it goes back to what we were talking about before, right? You can't just get somebody to to believe by giving them information. There's a, a spiritual aspect to it that is unseen, and so having that argument with with Satan would be very unfruitful, right?
Answer a fool according to his folly, right? Yeah. All right. Uh, verses 8 and 9. Here we see that Satan tempts with the kingdoms of the world. Uh, it says that the devil took him to a very high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Now, this seems like a, a really easy one for Jesus to say No. You're not God. I, I'm not going to worship you, right? Um, but in in reality, I think that uh, Satan was presenting Christ with a shortcut to what he was working for in his whole ministry. Remember, he's just barely starting out on his ministry. He's just been baptized. He's setting out on his three-year ministry. He's been, uh, we use the term, inaugurated before with his baptism. And now he's being commissioned to go out. And Satan's saying, you know what, just forego all that, that suffering, forego the cross and that pain. Um, you don't need to, to really satisfy that, that wrath of God in that way. I'll just, I'll go ahead and I'll give it to you. Remember that uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that Satan is the, the God of this world. Uh, John 12, 31 says that he's the ruler of this world. Ephesians 2, 2 says that he is the prince of the power of the air. So he is in possession of the world. This is his domain his he has dominion uh for the time being and he offered it to jesus to take the shortcut and um, jesus once again responds by quoting scripture in context to rebuke him saying you shall worship the lord your god and serve him only so again that that seems really obvious on the front but i think that the temptation would have been real to forego all that pain and suffering and take that shortcut to uh to appease his, his love for the people, right? He's the, the suffering servant, came to seek and to save the lost, and here he has it right there on a, a silver platter. Um, but it's a shortcut, and it's a shortcut that dishonors God that he would be ultimately unable to take. All right, and then the last verse here, we see that Jesus is ministered to by angels. That is what angels do. We can look at Hebrews 1, uh, 14 or, or 16 somewhere in there and talks about how uh, angels are ministering spirits to to us that is their their purpose to minister to believers and here they're ministering to jesus himself um, he is um, likely being fed here by these angels they're coming in and ministering to him at the end of luke's account in luke 4 13 he ends by saying that when the devil had finished every temptation, again, kind of helping us to see there's probably more than just these three, um, according to what Mark says, and he says when he had finished every temptation, that Satan departed from him until an opportune time. And that is Satan's MO. That is how he operates. Remember uh, that quote from 
Chrysostom that Satan is, is crafty. He waits until you are isolated and alone. That's what he did with Eve, waited until she was isolated and alone. Um, Satan uses the same playbook over and over again, doesn't he? And um, I put on here a, a diagram from this man, Louis Barbieri. Um, and he goes through and he talks about the similarities between Satan's temptation of Eve in Genesis 3 and his temptation of Jesus here in Matthew 4. And so in appealing to their physical appetite in Genesis 3, he said, take of this fruit and eat of this tree. It's, it's pleasing to the eye. Um, and then he said to Jesus here in Matthew 4, uh, go ahead and, and eat. I know that you're hungry. Make these stones become bread. In appealing to personal gain, he told Eve, surely you will not die. And he told Jesus in Matthew 4, you will not hurt your foot. And appealing to the power of glory, he said to Eve that you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And being able to discern the two, he said to Jesus that you will have all the world's kingdoms. Uh, This is how Satan operates. Um, These are the same types of sins that we have to deal with today on a daily basis. Look at 1 John 2.16. It says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, but from the world. These are the same tools that Satan is using today to, um, to seek to, to trip us up. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life. All right, and then... Uh, John MacArthur kind of looks back and he summarizes these three specific episodes of temptation that both Matthew and Luke present, the same ones that Mark uh, just kind of glanced over in those two verses. And he says, the three episodes recounted by Matthew and Luke indicate that Satan primarily attacked Jesus in his role as suffering servant. The devil did not entice Jesus to give up his sovereign prerogative but rather he urged Jesus to exercise the power and privilege inherent in his divine status and thus abandon the humiliation of his incarnation. I thought that was really astute, really interesting how uh, it's not Satan saying, oh yeah, just denounce the fact that you are God. He's saying, no, embrace the fact that you are God and denounce your humiliation. Announce this humanity, this incarnation. Uh, He told him, go ahead and, and create bread. That's not something that simple humans do, right? Um, Embrace your divine nature, Jesus. Create bread. Uh, He told him, go ahead and and take dominion. That's something that a a king does. Embrace your your kingly authority, Jesus. He told him to uh, command the angels. Jump off and and command the angels. Let's do a a little show. Let's uh, exercise your your power. Let's flex that muscle a little bit and show these angels who's boss. Uh, Jump off and and let's... uh, Embrace the, the deity and denounce that humil- humiliation, that humanity. Um, but indeed, Jesus didn't listen, and instead he humbled himself, even to the point of death, death on a cross, uh, which is interesting, right? That, first of all, uh, Satan would be so crafty and cunning and um, deceitful as to take that approach, um, and that Jesus would... Um, denounce that and he would say no I'm not going to I'm not going to listen I'm not going to take that route so go ahead that, that perspective I'm, I think that assumes or at least implies that Satan had a pretty good understanding of what God's plan with Jesus was 
rather than, I guess, the possible alternative being that he just kind of sees Jesus as a person that is trying to destroy him in some way. This would say Satan had a pretty good understanding of who Jesus really was and what his mission was. Is that, is that yeah, the I, case? Yeah, I think he did. Uh, we see later on that the demons were calling out to Jesus and they were calling him son of God and they were saying, leave us alone, it's not our time yet, um, hold off. So it seems like they have definitely a lot more understanding than, than we do. Satan is uh, crafty, he's brilliant. Uh, he was the, the highest of the fallen angels. Um, so yeah, there are presuppositions built into that and there are different ways to understand it, I suppose. But I tend to agree with that. I think that... Satan did have a, a higher understanding of Jesus and his his mission, what what it is that he was to accomplish, and who it is that he was. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. I think sometimes you hear those stories told as if like Satan's trying to trick this guy into yeah. you know messing up or ending his life, or like this shows like he has a much more yeah. And remember, Jesus, Jesus, um, he existed before the incarnation, right? And he had relationship with Satan. Satan knew God. There is one being of God, as we discussed. Satan was under, understanding and aware of this God who was his creator. He was subject to him. So I absolutely think that Satan knew who Jesus was, and he was not approaching him as a, a mere man, uh, which gets into some interesting theology, which goes along with this text. We've looked at this uh, exegetically, and now let's look at it uh, theologically um, and ask ourselves this very important question that's often asked when approaching this text. Could Jesus have given in to the temptation and sinned? Do you guys want to take a stab at it before I <laughs> tell you the, my position, which I think is fairly defensible? If not, that's okay. What's that? He can't sin. No, he, he definitely can't sin, right? Jesus is God, as we already discussed. Um, there's one being God, and Jesus being one of the three persons of this one being, he is absolutely unable to sin. Uh, let's look at some, some verses on this. If you guys don't mind uh, looking up those ones in yellow and reading those, um, let's walk through these verses real quick and look at how why Jesus could not have sinned. In John 15, 10... It says, if you kept my, keep my commandments, Jesus talking, then you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus is a commandment-keeping person, right? In the same chapter in John 18, 38, I know this is the words of man, but Pilate looked at Jesus and recognized, he said, I find absolutely no guilt in him. Um, and then... 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus had no sin. And then Hebrews 4.15, who's got that for us? I got first John. Okay. Hebrews 4.15, All right, what's that say, Mike? So it says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things Amen. What a beautiful verse. Uh, our high priest can sympathize with us because he's been through it. He's been tempted in everything as we have, yet he is without sin. 
Uh, and then 1 Peter 2.22 is actually quoting from Isaiah 53.9. Uh, and it says that this man who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He committed no sin, no deceit found in his mouth. And then 1 John 2, what does that say, uh, Joseph? It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. All right, because Jesus is righteous, because he's sinless, he is able to act as our advocate. And then jump over to chapter 3 and read verse 5 for us, if you will. It says, And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. All right, there is no sin. <laughs> yeah, it's very clear, right? Um, not only is there no sin, but I'm firmly convinced that he is unable to sin because he is God. Uh, and this is, if you're interested, known as the impeccability of Christ, that Jesus, being God, cannot sin. Um, that's the impeccability of, of Jesus. And this is an important phrase. If you guys are taking notes, you want to jot this down, that Jesus is truly God and truly man in one person, and he will be forever. Does anybody know the, the fancy theological term for that phrase? For that truth, that doctrine and teaching? Add a boy, Sam. That's one the hypostatic union. That's what? That was one class I didn't sleep through. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Uh, that is a, a big word. We don't need to remember that big fancy word, but that truth that it represents, that is super important. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Uh, if he wasn't, then we would have issues, right? He wouldn't be able to, to fulfill the role that he fulfilled. He wouldn't be able to be that, that intercessor, that mediator that he is. He has to be truly God and truly man. Let's take a look at the humanity of Jesus. We obviously already saw a little bit of that in the temptation of Christ. The fact that he was being tempted, the fact that uh, he was hungry, the fact that he can eat, right, to... Uh, first prevent himself from being hungry and then he can stop eating to induce this hunger. Uh, these are all things that attest to his humanity. But let's take a look. Uh, even within Mark, we can see the humanity of Christ fairly, fairly clearly. And again, if you guys will help me by looking up these ones in yellow, that would be uh, helpful. Let's look at Mark 1, verse 41. And um, in these verses we see that Jesus is moved with compassion. Who's got Mark 141? Alright. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Alright. In 634, it says that when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And then 936, what's that say? I've got it. Okay. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said, oh, wait, do I have the right one? Yeah. 936? Yeah, it doesn't say explicitly that he showed compassion, but he, he did. He took yeah. this child, he sat him up, and uh, he was uh, exalting them and uh, being gracious and compassionate with this child. And Mark 3, 5, who's got that one for us? After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. 
All right. So there we see both humanity and deity, right? Um, that um, he he had these human emotions, uh, this anger, this grief, and then he uh, fixed and, and restored his hand. Um, and then Mark eight twelve. Do you want to grab that in the back? I'm not sure if I I know your name. Alma. Alma. Yeah. All right. Mark eight twelve. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. All right. Again, Jesus sighing deeply in his spirit, having a, a real compassion for them. Uh, at the, the end of Matthew 23, we see the same thing, that he looked out on Israel and he had compassion for them and wept and cried over them because they were, um, again, the same kind of concept, sheep without a shepherd. They, they needed somebody. So we see... Jesus' emotions, his human emotions. We also see his uh, human limitations. In Mark 4:38, we see that Jesus slept. This was something that he, he had to do, was doing regularly. And just kind of in passing, Mark mentions, yeah, he was sleeping. It's not like he's highlighting and, and going through systematically like we are and pointing out all the reasons why Jesus was human. But just in the, the course of his giving this this story, this dialogue, he mentions that Jesus was sleeping. Mark eleven twelve mentions the fact that Jesus got hungry. Again, very natural, very human thing to do. Uh, before this, Jesus never got hungry before the incarnation. That's not a divine deity type of, it's not a divine attribute to be hungry, right? And then Mark 6, 8, what does it say in Mark 6, 8? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? All right. Yeah. So even to his own community, he just appeared like a normal, normal guy, right? He's just some dude. He's just a carpenter, right? We know his brothers. We know his family. Um, he's he's not God. He's not divine. Why are we Why are we listening to him? Um, and then John 7, 5 says even his own brothers didn't believe in him. That's how human Jesus was, right? That he grew up in the same household with these brothers and they said, oh, it's just Jesus, right? Um, they didn't think that he was the divine son of God, that he was the creator of the universe because he truly was human, uh, fully human and fully God. Um, Luke two forty and 52 We'll talk about how Jesus grew and how he uh, developed in, in wisdom and in stature. We see the same thing in, in Hebrews 5, 8, that uh, Jesus grew and, and learned. Uh, he had uh, challenges to obedience that uh, grew in difficulty as he grew and aged. Um, he was truly human. He went through all these human experiences that you and I go through as well. And then let's take a look at the, the deity of Christ really quickly going throughout Mark. We see in Mark 3.11 that um, he is a son of God. It says, whatever the unclean spirit saw in him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. So again, um, back to uh, Josh and your point, um, even the, the demons believed and, and saw and knew and understood. So yeah, that was the understanding of Satan as well, that they knew that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, same thing here in, in Mark 5, 7. Uh, they recognized his divine authority. 
that verse says, that shouting with a loud voice, he says, what business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God, I implore you by God, do not torment me. And we'll get to this in another lesson, but I don't want you to think that when the phrase son of God is being used, that that's anything less than God. We see in John chapter 5, John chapter 8, John chapter 10, that when that phrase is used of Jesus, uh, the, the Pharisees, they picked up stones to stone Jesus because he, calling himself the Son of God, was making himself equal with God. So that term isn't in any way saying that he is any less than divine. Uh, Mark fourteen sixty one through 62. That's an awesome passage. Will somebody grab that passage for us? Mark 14, 61, and 62. Go ahead and read it out for us whenever you get there. I'll slowly start turning there just in case, but I'm sure you can beat me there. Amen. That's a, an awesome, just really quick phrase in which Jesus uh, kind of offhand seemingly quotes and alludes to uh, Exodus 3.14, where the, from the burning bush, Moses hears, uh, I am that I am, that's who you should say sent me. Uh, and then also Psalm 110.1 and uh, Daniel, what is it, Daniel 7.13, I put it on the screen. Um, Jesus is making references to, to all these things, that he is the son of man, that he is um, the, the great I am who is there. And in saying that, they, they fell back in the other gospel accounts. We can see that they knew and understood what it is that he was saying. He was making a claim to deity here by referencing three uh, Old Testament texts that were using messianic language. language. All right. Um, Wrapping this together, I want to go through uh, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. He gives six different reasons why Jesus must be man, um, why he, he had to fully embrace that, that humanity. He had to be truly human and truly divine. Um, he says that, number one, he has to be man in order to adequately represent us. Uh, Romans 5, 18 19 goes through and talks about how uh, transgression came to the world as a re result of one man and spread to all men um, and how this resulted in justification of life to all men because um, Jesus came um, let me see I'm getting messed up here because I'm trying to say hi to people yeah even so the obedience of the one um, was spread to the many so Jesus adequately represents us as a man. We have to be represented by uh, somebody who is similar to us. Uh, Jesus must be a man in order to be a substitute for us. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 says, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation or satisfactory payment for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So because of Jesus' humanity, being able to go through that temptation, he can uh, be a substitute for us. Um, 
and he can also be an example for us. 1 John 2.6 says the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked, which we wouldn't be able to observe if Jesus had not be, been a man, if he had not been incarnate. Uh, this also allows him to be a sympathetic high priest. We see this in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. It's a great passage there. Uh, it allows him to be a mediator. 1 Timothy 2, 5 says that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And then his humanity also allows um, for him to be a human ruler over creation. Uh, this is kind of interesting. I'm not going to get into it, but Hebrews 2, 8 and 9 um, talks about how Man has been created to have dominion over this world. That's not being uh, accomplished right now. But then the author of Hebrews says, but we have Jesus and kind of points to Jesus and the fact that in the future he will um, seem to fulfill that role. So um, let me present some homework for you and see if we have a little bit of time for a question or two. Um, I have a Got Questions article up here on the the two natures of Christ. Does Christ have two natures? I think that's a pretty good article, so I will go ahead and take that out and leave that up here and encourage you guys to read through that. It's pretty interesting stuff. And then um, if you want to get a head start on next week, we're going to cover a lot more next week. I know we've been going kind of slow. Next week we're going to cover 14, 15 verses, which is more than we've covered in the last five weeks. So... Uh, Try, try reading through that and to do so in two or three different translations, um, that might be a, a help and blessing for you. It's always a good uh, way to approach Bible study. And then tell somebody about Jesus this week because that is what Christians are to do. We are to be ambassadors and representatives of Christ. So uh, let me challenge and encourage you to do that this week. It's like we have maybe a minute or so for any thoughts or questions wrapping us up. We covered a lot today, going over uh, the Trinity, the hypostatic union, the impeccability of Christ. These are big terms that you don't have to remember, but the theology behind them is very important.